Well, you can go ahead and find your way to 1 Samuel. We're going to start in chapter 10. First Samuel chapter 10. Uh, if you have a hard time finding first Samuel, right before second Samuel. It's really helpful to remember that. Uh, that's how the order usually works. It's kind of like just as helpful as when you're in the minor prophets and you're like, uh, you know, go to turn to Joel and you're like, oh man, I haven't been in the minor prophets in a while. And you're like, well, it's right before Hosea, so that should help. Yeah, First Samuel, we're jumping ahead a couple generations um, because the time of the judges ends and the time of the kings comes right after that. So everyone should know the first king in Israel is Saul, and he is the first of the three kings of the United Kingdom. Um, just to give you kind of an overview, when Israel left Egypt and came into the Promised Land, it was under the direction and leadership of Moses who behaved both as prophet and as sort of leader, king-ish type person, right? And then uh, his brother was high priest, Aaron, right? And so once they came to the land, after a whole generation of disbelieving the Lord's promise, that was the generation that died in the wilderness, then Joshua takes over leadership, uh, kind of more of just a, a warlord type leadership, not really a priest uh, in, in the, or, or excuse me, a prophet in the way that Moses was. Moses was quite unique with that. Um, the elders of Israel, as we watch that kind of transition take place, where the spirit of the Lord moved from just Moses to the 70 elders of Israel. We saw that in Numbers chapter 11. Uh, and then when they came into the land and the conquest of Canaan, and then all the land was divided up, we enter the time period of the judges, which we just kind of finished and closed out. The time of the judges is a bizarre period of Israel's history where they are um, following the Lord, then disobedient to the Lord, then put into another form of slavery or captivity or oppression or whatever the case may be in far, as far as judgment to what they're doing. And then the Lord raises up a judge or a deliverer, delivers them, and then the land has rest for about a generation. That cycle continues over and over and over again. Twelve different judges, Samson being the last one, which we talked about last week. And then all of a sudden, we have a unique character named Samuel. Samuel comes in, and he is both prophet and judge. So he fills a very unique role, kind of, um, kind of akin to Moses, a little bit different, but he plays mainly a prophetic role, but then also he is kind of closing out the era of the judges and handing over the mantle to what the people of Israel wanted was a king. They wanted to be like all the other nations in the world. They wanted a king. Samuel warns them. He gives them the word of the Lord. This was his prophetic role. When the word of the Lord came to him, say, you don't, you don't want a king. A king does this and oppresses and does all these types of things. The Lord your God is to be your king, right? They were to follow his law, his commands, his rule. That's, that's really what the people of the Lord were always supposed to do, is to live under the rulership of God directly. First Samuel chapter 10, we're going to go to. And so the time of Samuel comes to an end because as closing out the age of the judges, he's also the prophet then to the king. So the Lord goes out and says, all right, and he makes a compromise with his people. He says, okay, you want a king? I'm going to select the king then. I will select the person and 
raise him up to be king in my land. And so he uses his prophet at the time, that's Samuel, to anoint and to promise to Saul what would happen with his reign. Now, reign of Saul is pretty long, but we don't have that many details about it. Um, what we do and what we are going to pay attention to is the fact that Saul receives the Spirit of the Lord very much in the same way that someone like Samson did. But then we see not only the Spirit of the Lord taken from Saul and a whole new spirit from the Lord come to him. That's, we'll discuss that here at the end. Um, but then we also see his lineage and his kingdom is taken away from him because of disobedience. We're going to walk through that in chapter 13 and then finish off in chapter 16. So chapter 10, chapter 11, 13, and 16. We're going to be right here in these like seven chapters, okay? Um, So Saul gets anointed king, and then he is uh, given a a prophetic uh, prediction about the Spirit of the Lord is going to be coming upon you um, and rushing upon him as he does. That is fulfilled and in a really unique way. Um, so I, I, the story of Saul is fascinating. Uh, it's not as central as the story of David, which is next, obviously, because after Saul comes David, after David comes Solomon, and then after that, divided kingdom. Uh, you have Solomon's kingdom broken up amongst his son, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and then you have Israel and Judah side by side for hundreds and hundreds of years. Israel, the northern ten tribes, is carried away to Assyria. We'll, we'll work through all this history. And then Judah, later on, is carried away to Babylon. And then the ten tribes of the north are lost to history. And the tribes of Judah, um, the two and a half tribes of Judah, are taken to captivity to Babylon. And then Persia, that's the story of Daniel and Ezekiel. And um, eventually um, Haggai and uh, Ezra and Nehemiah come back to build the walls of Jerusalem and settle back in the land of Israel, right? So that's kind of that whole history. We're going to walk through all of that because the Spirit of the Lord is involved with all of it. Um, that's just giving you like the next eight weeks kind of in quick succession, right? So here we kind of start off this life under a king while the Spirit of the Lord is working. And so we're going to talk about first the brand new language that we're going to have regarding the Spirit of the Lord, anointing. We've heard that, and if you read any kind of books about, you know, the Spirit of the Lord, you'll see people using this out of context all over the place. Um, what is anointing? What's the purpose of it? What, what really does it do? And we don't read much about it in the New Testament, do we? It really has much to do with the Old Testament. Um, and you will get specific anointing, which is just pouring oil over someone's head. If you really want an, uh, a New Testament kind of version of that, baptism is about as close as we get to it. It's signifying something that God is doing in that person. And so when God, through his prophet, is selecting a new king, you're going to see the prophet come up and anoint that king. Yes, ma'am. I know in the Catholic religion that when somebody's going to die, they do the cross in oil on the person's forehead. Correct. Is that symbolic going all the way back? Yes. Yep. Yep. It's, it's uh, yeah, the, the um, in the Catholic religion that has to do with uh, last rites and um, and a certain appeal back to that. Um, so the idea was that it was signifying that the Lord is doing something through this person right now, right? And so uh, sometimes you were anointed to a specific task, but usually to a specific office. Um, 
not to the prophetic offices. It's the prophets that are usually doing this. The prophets had their own signifiers. They actually had the word of the Lord. Or like Ezekiel, his entire life typified the, uh, the story that the Lord was telling. We'll walk through all that. But for kings and priests, right? And so you'll see this happen in the New Testament, and it kind of comes to an end in the Gospels. You'll see um, the, the woman um, coming and, and anointing Jesus' feet, with oil, which is a real remarkable state of humiliation, something that was incredibly expensive for her, but Christ attaches it to worship directly. She was recognizing that whatever you are about to do, God is working in it, right? And what did he say? She's anointed me for my burial. God was going to work through his death something unique for the entire world, right? We'll get to all that. So go back here. Samuel is coming to Saul who's just out looking for donkeys. Saul is not seeking to be king. It's not like they, you know, put out a, you know, zip recruiter type, you know, want ad, whoever is the tallest person in the land uh, who doesn't have anything else to do for the next 30 years, you know, come and let's see if you'll make a good king. No, even though God had not commanded them to have a king, in fact, he had warned them not to take a king, the people in their arrogance took a king, and in fact, you have all sorts of stipulations, even in Deuteronomy, for how kings should act. When you fail paying attention to the Lord's commands, here's how you should select a king. That's all the way back multiple generations before this, hundreds of years, by the way. And so Moses and God had already talked about this reality that when they come to the land, they're going to reject the Lord's reign. So that's, that's a remarkable study in and of itself because it's three or four hundred years before it happens. Here, Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, is sent with a flask of oil to anoint Saul. Uh, here, it uh, will pick up a couple verses, or just one verse, before the end of um, before the end of First uh, Samuel chapter nine. Uh, all of two verses. Then, at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, "Up, that I may send you on your way." And so Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And they were going down to the outskirts of the city. Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I, make known to you, that I may make known to you the word of God. And then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? You shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And uh, they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is now anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from, those, from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin um, uh, a skin of wine, and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. After that, you will come to Gibeah Elohim, uh, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre, and before them prophesying. Watch this. Here's where the Spirit of the Lord is promised to Saul. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now that's brand new. 
all of a sudden we have an imposition of someone who has no history of the prophetic, someone who has no history of ruling, someone who has no lineage of being in the kingship's lines, all of a sudden is anointed to be prince over the people of Israel, is prophesied to carry out that the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon him, that he will become another man, and then he will join not only the prince category, but also the prophet category. And that, uh, that, um, that Saul will actually prophesy uh, with the prophets, and then he will be turned into another man. That's an important little phrase here. Um, and so I want you to see, not only is that promised, but it's immediately fulfilled. Keep reading. Now, when these signs meet you, Samuel says to him, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. And then go before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt sacrifices and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Isn't that amazing? When he had turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And then everyone goes, Why is Saul now one of the prophets? Right. It's important for us to set aside a proper definition of prophecy before we really continue with the story of Saul. When you hear the word prophecy, what do you think? What, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? The future. the future, right? For telling the future. Yeah, that's actually a very, very small part of prophecy. That's the part of prophecy everyone likes to pay attention to. Prophecy is just giving what the Lord says to the people of God. That's it. The Lord has thus said, right? This is why you'll see the prophets all over the thing. Thus says the Lord, and then they hand it down. Most of it doesn't necessarily have to do with the future. Most of it is actually dealing with present issues and saying, if you don't repent, this is what will happen. Ramifications of unrepentance, right? So that's the majority of prophecy. A lot of it is just straight up commands. The Lord says to come here, don't do this or go do this. And this is what Samuel, the prophet, is saying to Saul. He comes to him and says, look, this is what's about to happen. It happens later that day. He says, but... You will also have this command from the Lord. Go over here. Do not attack until I come and offer sacrifices on your behalf, both of burnt offerings and of peace offerings. Stop what you're doing and wait. Right? Most of the prophets will deal with that. A lot of prophecy is about the future, but prophecy and future telling are not synonymous. Prophecy is about this is what the Lord has said. This is why Moses has a huge prophetic office, but he's not infatuated with the future. What he's talking about is, here's the law of the Lord, here's the commands, here's the statutes, here's, here's the rules, right? That is a prophetic office just the same, right? So when Jesus comes and says, um, for instance, those who hear my words and do them are like a wise man who builds his house on the rock, right? There he is addressing that those who see me as a prophet, giving the word of the Lord, with Jesus it's even more so, he is the word of the Lord, um, that office is carrying out commands, warnings, and even portents. If you, if you don't do these things, here's what will happen. When Jonah, for instance, comes to Nineveh, right? That whole book of, of, of Jonah, four chapters, there's only one sentence that's prophecy. The rest of it's just a narrative about Jonah and his story. 
uh, and kind of how uh, you know, a bit of a louse he is, right? There's only one sentence of prophecy in there. 40 days hence, and this city will be destroyed. That's it. It's the only sentence he gives, and the entire city repents. Right? Remarkable story. Remarkable, because that's all of the word of the Lord that was needed to bring about repentance of that generation in that city. Kind of remarkable, because if you think about it, where are the details? <laughs> you know? There was absolutely nothing else said. It just says Jonah not only was reluctant to preach this, but he just went through saying that over and over and over again. Three days journey across the city, back and forth, just saying that one sentence over and over again, and the entire city repented, even down to their animals. So there is, there is a, yeah, we'll get to that someday. Where is our Jonah? Yeah, uh, the word of the Lord. Whoa. The scriptures have taken the prophetic office, and has put it into writing, right? This is why the church is based on the foundation, not just of the apostles, but also the prophets. We have the scriptures, and that is what the word of the Lord is, right? Now, there is some prophetic parts to like a pastoral ministry. Our job is to just give what God says and not change it. You know, our goal is not to do these, but pastors are not prophets on any official level. It's just that that office has been morphed in the church age. We'll talk about that when we get there. Right here, we see Samuel coming up to Saul, anointing him for special service. And the anointing almost always signifies the work of the Spirit of the Lord from this point forward. So when you see a king being anointed, you're going to be seeing that the Spirit of the Lord is doing something unique. Now, I say this, just because the Spirit of the Lord is not explicitly stated throughout the Old Testament or even in the New doesn't mean he's not involved. The only reason we're paying attention to the explicit references is because those ones are there to teach us something really unique and significant. Um, and so that's what we're seeing here. The Spirit of the Lord is involved with giving the word of the Lord. In the New Testament, this is called the Spirit of the Prophets, which means there is a unity between what God says and what the Spirit of the Lord is doing. There is complete working together. Right? And so when the Spirit of the Lord rushes on Saul, what's the first thing he does? Prophesy. He gives the word of the Lord. Something he had never studied, something he had never known, something that wasn't in Scripture. That's unique. That's not natural. That is beyond natural, way beyond. That is supernatural. This is how the Bible says, before the coming of Christ, there was many ways that God gave his word to the world. This is one of them. Saul was of, of no specific report, a report in the, uh, in the towns. People were confused that Saul had this new ability. It doesn't seem to match him or who he is or what he's caring about. He was out there just looking for donkeys, and he comes back prophesying the word of the Lord. Nobody's ever taught him this. Nobody's ever seen this. It's not natural. It's something beyond him. This is why the Spirit of God is explicitly referenced here, that when they came to do these things uh, at Gibeah, here in verse 10, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him. The kind of the picture is that the Spirit of God was working with these prophets as they were coming down from the high place there, and the Spirit of God, just, just like with Moses and the elders, whoosh, rushed over to meet Saul, and then he all of a sudden joined the prophets. And he was prophesying the word of the Lord. Now, have we ever seen anything like this in the church? No. 
We don't see anything like that. Not in this age. God worked in unique ways at this time uh, to bring about his word of the Lord. Again, we have something that Peter says is far better than this. Word of the Lord, which has been made more sure. This is why we're infatuated with the scriptures and we pour into them what we do. Saul becomes proclaimed king in the rest of this chapter, chapter 10. Uh, If you go up to chapter 11, you see that Saul carries on kind of this, this feel of the time of the judges. When the people of the Lord needed to be delivered from a specific enemy, the Spirit of the Lord would rush upon him, and just like Samson or, or one of these other judges, it would work up this kindled anger that would go out and defeat enemies and then free his people. You'll see this, oh, in the defeat of the Ammonites here. Oh, I'll just start in verse 1. We're working our way up to verse 6. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh and, uh, said to Nahash, uh, Make a treaty with us, and we, will, uh, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to him, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace upon all of Israel. Uh, and uh, the elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. The last last ditch effort, by the way, taking out the right eye, takes out your archers, takes out your ability of depth perception. You cannot lead a rebellion. That was what the point was. It wasn't to make you so that you can't work fields. It was made so that you cannot rebel against their rulership. Okay? And... So they go out and they're saying, we need somebody to help deliver us. Again, the people of Israel are desperate for something like this. The messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, and they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? And so they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah were 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation." And go out, all of that, the kingdom is renewed, set up, uh, Ammonites are fought against. Again, very similar to the time of the judges. We're only two generations after that. It shouldn't be a whole, whole bunch of a surprise that God uses the anger of the leader to bring about the salvation of the people. They were facing physical invasion and ending of their own rulership. And God says, no, I have a king who rules, and it's not the Ammonites. And so what is it that God does here? He defends his people, Israel, because while the kingship is being handed over to Saul, the Ammonites are trying to gain a foothold, just like any other nation in the world. And God says, no, that doesn't work. Just because I'm not king there anymore doesn't mean that I don't defend this people for my own namesake. Because again, why was God dealing with Israel at all? Was it for anything good they had done? No. Was it because they had a great land of their own and good prosperity? No. It wasn't for anything. In fact, God says, 
Not only was it not because of your own righteousness, you're actually a stubborn, stiff-necked people that doesn't even want my rule. We know in retrospect why God was working with Israel for all these years. It was to bring about the Messiah. That was it. Almost entirely. The whole purpose of Israel was so that there would be a family and a lineage that would depict the salvation of Messiah all the way up to his coming. And that when he comes, all of a sudden something surprising happens. It's not just the salvation of Israel, but of the entire world. Every nation under heaven and earth, including here. We're not Israelites, right? And yet we claim to serve a risen Messiah in Israel that is actually creator of not just Israel and not just king of Israel, but of the world, right? Every nation under heaven, even to the ends of the earth, right? And that's why the gospel goes out along with the spirit, not just to Jerusalem and Judea, but also Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world, which is where we now reside. Here, God is working with Saul and the people of Israel to depict these things before they happen. God will not save people by just living side by side with sin. He is ever the enemy of sin and ever going to be defeating it and destroying it. And here's one of the things that we see depicted with Saul's end, shall we say. Go to chapter 13. We're going to see one of the more frustrating parts of the story of Saul. And that is his disobedience and loss of the kingdom within the first couple of years. It's kind of a bizarre thing. When Saul was given the Spirit of the Lord at a specific instance, and as it says, turned into another man, uh, here we have about a year after that, uh, by some reckonings, um, and his reigning in Israel for only two years, we have him losing the kingdom permanently. His son will not take the reign after him. We have to see this story because it helps us understand that the moment that Samuel goes and anoints the next king, a little shepherd boy, the very next verse has Samuel's, uh, has the spirit of the Lord leaving Saul and going instead to David. So we're going to see that transition, but I want you to understand what happens in Saul's life to bring this about, right? Chapter 13. Starting verse 1, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan, his son, in Gibeon of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his own tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all, the Israel, uh, and all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. That's the setting. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots. That is unbelievable numbers, right? At this time period in history, we're talking about Bronze Age time. That is... That's incalculable, right? 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Incomprehensibly large force coming against them, right? They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. 
Uh, when the when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard pressed, that is the biggest understatement ever. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Okay, desperation. We're all going to die. And some Hebrews crossed the fords uh, of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Okay, so the setting is everyone's running, everyone's hiding, and Saul has no answers. And Saul had the command to wait for Samuel seven days so that Samuel would come and offer sacrifices before they went up against a force of that magnitude, right? That was what Samuel had said to him before. Here, Saul, verse 8, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So get this picture in mind. Saul is desperate. The word of the Lord had come and said something. The king's job is to follow the word of the Lord, no matter the outcome, no matter the cost, no matter the situation or circumstances, end of story. He doesn't have the right to go, well, the word of the Lord said this through the prophet, but uh, you know, circumstances are extreme, so we're going to make exception. No, the people are leaving. They're crossing the Jordan and going into the wilderness. The people are hiding in their caves and their homes under their beds and their cisterns. I mean, it, cisterns places to hold water, things like septic system. Like you're just getting into holes and rocks and cracks everywhere to make sure that nobody finds you. That's the setting of Saul that's in, that he's in. And so Saul said, forget it. Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. So what, what has Saul just done? Not, he not only disobeyed, he took upon himself not just the kingly role, but the prophetic role and the priestly role. No person is ever supposed to hold all of those. No one person. That, not until the time of Jesus. He holds all three offices. He is supposed to play the role of king, which is to listen to the word of the Lord when the prophet has already given him command. Right? And he is not a priest. He has never been anointed a priest. He has no right to be making these uh, sacrifices. Remember, when the time of the tabernacle was built... It wasn't just the priests that were anointed. It was the altar. It was the, it was the, the dressings that they would wear. It was the floor. It was the walls. It was the tent. It was the basin. Everything was anointed with blood everywhere, all over, dedicated. The priests were dedicated. You can't carry this out unless it is God who is doing it through you, right? Same thing with the priestly office, same thing with the kingly office, here, he takes on himself saying, the prophetic office I can ignore, I will take the priestly office and the kingly office, and I will save Israel in my own strength. That's what Saul's doing. It's not just disobedience. It is a complete rejection of the word of the Lord so that he can save Israel. Because he doesn't see how God's going to save Israel. So this doesn't make any sense. There's no natural way to win the, the battle we're about to go in. So I'm going to earn the Lord's favor by giving him whatever sacrifice he needs, and then we're going to go to war. That's how the pagan world looks at earning God's favor. God says, sacrifice is not about earning my favor. It doesn't work like that. Verse 10, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. It was almost like he was waiting around the corner for the very last 11th hour moment. Saul went out to meet him and greet him, and Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistine and mustard had mishmash, basically 
between a rock and a hard place. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, right? That's what he's trying to do. I want the Lord to have favor on me. He says, so I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept, remember, this is the prophetic office, the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose, went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah at Benjamin. They went through, they defeat the Philistines, etc., etc. Go to chapter 16. Actually, see chapter 15 for a second. Verse 22. I want you to see Samuel's long-winded response, um, but his poetic response to all of these things. This is as Saul has realized that the kingdom is being stripped from him, that because he took on the priestly office and rejected the prophetic and the word of the Lord, that the kingly office is now going to be removed from him. Right? This, this, is, this is very similar to how Jesus talks about um, those things given to us. You use them rightly, more will be given. You use them wrongly, even what you have will be taken. Right? How is it that that has continued on? That's how this has always kind of worked. If you're going to go out and take on roles that aren't yours to take, even what you have will be taken from you. Right? He, when, when Saul comes up and takes on the priestly role, not only is the priestly role taken from him, so is his anointed kingly role. And so is that of his entire lineage. God will not do that with someone. It doesn't work like that. All of these things had happened. There was many other things. You can read this whole story if you want to this week. There's many other things that happened that Saul did not do, that Samuel had to go and fix, and keeping Agag alive was one of them. There's a number of other things that are going on here. Samuel finally says to him in verse 22, says, Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen, better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. That is, that is a remarkable statement, by the way, from the prophetic office to the kingly office. Here, Samuel fulfilling the prophetic role and saying, not only is there a job for the prophet to come and to establish the word of the Lord, but there is also part of the prophetic office to ensure that the word of the Lord is listened to. This is, is not actually a better thing for you to do something wrong and then quickly sacrifice. It's actually better to just not do something wrong especially if it's your sacrifice. It's, it's on a whole nother level to actually disobey with sacrifice. Remember, Israel knew this. Leviticus chapter 10, if you want a scary story, is the story of Nadab and Abihu. Anyone remember who they were? They were the sons of Aaron, the high priest. 
They came and it said, offered strange fire before the Lord. The Lord reached out from the altar and killed them both as they were standing there before the altar of the Lord. That was one of the first things that Israel as a people ever witnessed from the priestly office. And these were the sons of Aaron, the high priest. Aaron was not allowed to mourn for them because the priestly's role is not to mourn for sin, it's to atone for it. And a very complicated story there, but the reality of that is you can't just play fast and loose with the priestly office. You can't just go out and do it just because you want to. It doesn't work like that. You do not worship God however you want. You worship how he has told you to do so, right? Why is it we sing songs? Because God has told us to do this. Why is it we hear the word of the Lord? Because God has told us to do this. We do those things that God has told us to do. Why? Because the word of the Lord is not just apex, it is the command. And it is the center, not only of worship, but also of conduct, everything that we do. And this is why Samuel, in his rebuke of Saul uh, here, using the spirit of the Lord in a way that he was not supposed to, he says, look, it's better to obey than it is to sacrifice, and it's better to listen than to offer the fat of rams. Rebellion is just like these witches that you've driven out of the land. It's just like the sin of divination. I mean, that is, that is a powerful statement. Just to rebel against the word of the Lord is the same as these witches that you're driving out of the land that are leading people into idolatry. To presume upon the Lord's grace and to just sin high-handedly and willfully is as iniquity and it's the same as idolatry. Because you've rejected, what is it that he says to Saul that he's rejected? The word of the Lord. Because you've rejected what the Lord has said, the Lord has rejected you from being king. You cannot maintain the leadership of the office of the people of God if you're going to play fast and loose with what the Lord has said. We're, we're going to see the Spirit of the Lord and the Word of the Lord interacting on levels that are inseparable for the rest of history. Because the reality is that now Scripture is being written we know now, in retrospect, who was it that was inspiring the prophets to write the scriptures at all? It wasn't the Father and it wasn't the Son. It was the Spirit of God. We know that in retrospect. They knew, that, they knew him as the Spirit of the prophets. We know him as the Holy Spirit. He is the one who has been doing this forever. The same one who is giving these messages through Samuel. The same one who is rejecting Saul as king. Go to the next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 16. Saul's disobedience had led to the loss of the kingdom, and it's about to go a whole other step further. He's not just going to lose the kingdom. He's not just going to lose his lineage as king. He's going to lose the Holy Spirit. Watch this story. 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. Now, you're about to go anoint someone. Get some oil, go. I have somebody else that I have set apart for this job. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king amongst his sons. And Samuel said to him, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. 
and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Basically, now he says, since the king will not do my word and my bidding, now it falls to you, prophet, to do my word and my bidding, go out and find a new king. This time I'll select him. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, I'll show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint him for me, uh, anoint for me him whom I declare to you. That's a hard way to say that. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded. Again, if you ever find yourself in a Bible study and you want to do a quick character-by-character comparison, Saul to Samuel, and their, their interaction with the word of the Lord is a really awesome study. Saul, every time he hears the word of the Lord, throws it away. Every time Samuel hears the word of the Lord, though he's reluctant and doesn't like it, does it. That's kind of remarkable. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? That's kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? Why would you tremble before the prophet? (laughs) So you know that the Lord has rejected Saul as king, and he has fallen back onto the prophetic office to reestablish a kingship line. If the elders support that and the king gets wind of it, not only will they come trying to seek Samuel and the Lord will save his prophetic, what's going to happen to those who gave him hotel care? The king in his rage will kill all of them. You best believe the elders are going to come out trembling. Why have you come here? He said, I've come peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself. Come with me to the sacrifice. I don't want to be one of these elders in the city, to be perfectly frank with you. Um, And so he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Eliab would be the oldest brother, right? Because I have rejected him. What did he do wrong? Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. By the way, if you think that's good news, may I just remind you what's in man's heart. Right? That's not as such good news as people think. That's just not hope for us, you know, ugly people. The reality is that our hearts are far more ugly than our outward appearance would indicate. This is where Samuel's going, though. The Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. By the way, I would encourage you to think of church that way. Verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And he says, well, the meaningful ones are. He said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's taking care of the sheep so that we can come here and do the important stuff. That's kind of the paraphrase. He doesn't even need to attend the sacrifice. He's not old enough for anything. No worries about him. That can't possibly be the one that the Lord has chosen. Samuel said to Jesse, send out and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Watch this transfer. It's one of the most significant transfers in all of Scripture. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, not to accomplish anything yet, 
from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And in its place, a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. What just happened? The Davidic line is established in a moment in the presence of all his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord is going to make it happen. The anointing oil does not have any magical or mystical properties. It's signifying the promise of the Lord on that person. And so Samuel is not going to go out and just anoint all of his brothers and say, well, I guess it would have worked with one of them. It accompanies the word of the Lord. Samuel thinks that it must be this guy. And the Lord's like, nope, no, it doesn't work like that. It's not outward appearance. Okay, maybe this guy. And he goes down through all of them. He's just like, well, we've run out of Jesse's sons. What are we going to do? And he's like, well, there's just this little, this inconsequential guy, the youngest of all of his brothers. Yeah, sure, he's cute and all, but he's just young. What does he know? You're going to make him king? And I think it's fantastic because the reality is he's not going to become king until Saul dies, which is many years after this. He's anointed king as a kid, David is, and receives the spirit of the Lord. And the spirit of the Lord does not depart David for his entire life after that. Very, very unique circumstance. When I say unique, there's nobody else in all of Israel's history until the coming of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts that has this experience. This experience foreshadows everything in the church age. Not only that, it foreshadows Jesus' entire ministry. Because here's the thing, think with me. How many miracles did Jesus do before the Spirit of the Lord descended and alighted upon him at his baptism? Zero. He didn't do anything. He wasn't like practicing his magical tricks for 27 or 29 or 30 years before his baptism. No. He just lived as one of us, fulfilling righteousness. Yes, ma'am. Would not the Holy Spirit have been with him when he was teaching to the, when in the synagogues, when he was uh, talking with the priests at that time? You mean when he was 12 at the temple? No, there he was doing about his father's business. The spirit of the Lord does not come to him until the very day his ministry starts, and that as at his baptism. The first thing that the spirit of the Lord does, the uh, book of Mark makes it clearer than Matthew or Luke, is the spirit of the Lord drives him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's the first thing. Now, there's a lot of reasons why that is, and it's one of the most exciting things. I won't give it all away, but... Here's the secret. It was to do what Adam couldn't do, which is to resist the devil, not in a place of plentifulness and being well-fed, but in a place of barren and starving. Succeeding in that as the second Adam then comes back, and it wasn't time to do miracles yet. I'm not going to make bread from rocks, though he makes bread in abundance from nothing later. He's not going to do it there. He comes back in, and he starts preaching what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the opening of the book of Mark, right? All of that to say is that the Spirit of the Lord, when he comes, brings specific purpose. David is the most remarkable king in Israel's history, mainly because the Spirit of the Lord was speaking through him all of his life. It's why he wrote half of the book of Psalms 
It's why he is expressed as the, the root from the one that would come eventually. And through his lineage, it would be a king that would be like Moses, a king that would be like David, someone who would come after them that would ultimately deliver the people of God. Did they fully understand that? Nope. Not until Jesus came and surprised all of them and saying, the kingdom of heaven is far bigger than Jerusalem or Judea or even Samaria, those half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Assyrian. That's what Samaria was. Did the Jews believe at that time in the afterlife? One of my dear friends just did her entire dissertation on that exact question. Um, The full orb concept of afterlife was not fully developed, no. There was some concept of it, yes. Uh, But nowhere near first century levels. Uh, Back at this time, most of it would extend into reputation and through your children. You would live in the influence through your children forever and ever. So there would be a lot more of that focus than there would be. But you can't overlook passages, for instance, like Daniel chapter 12, which talks about the resurrection at the end of the age, where those who sleep in the dust will rise, some to life and everlasting um, joy and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So you have some instances of that in the prophecies, especially Isaiah and Daniel. But at this time in Israel's history, you don't really have fully revealed reality about that. The people in Israel are not fully aware of that. Most everything is focused on this life because Messiah hadn't come yet, I would argue. Um, yeah. Did they see Moses, I mean, did the people see Moses ascend to heaven or was he alone? Hmm. In other words, they didn't see he was alone. the prophets. Yeah. Uh, and Moses, by the way, didn't ascend to heaven. He died. Um, we find out in the book of Jude that uh, Michael the archangel and Satan were arguing over what do we done with his body. That's what was happening behind the shrouded cloud at the top of that mountain that we didn't know in the Old Testament. Um, so as far as for what all develops about that is a really complicated area that I will just simply put out. Research is being done in that area as recent as this past year in people that I personally know um, because the amount of information is so sparse and so unclear. So it requires a lot of digging. So it is beyond my area of familiarity, but I do know some who are working on it. And they do claim, yes, there was something there, but it is nowhere near as well-developed as the New Testament age. Nowhere near. What about this transfer between two kings? What a remarkable transfer. You know, the Spirit of the Lord being with Saul was indicative of his reign. The Spirit of the Lord being with David when he wasn't yet king is promissory. This is a promise that God is going to fulfill in David what he had intended with Saul and Saul through his disobedience lost. Now, when we come to next week, we are going to attempt to cover David's entire experience with the Spirit of the Lord in one morning. Um, So I'm going to start promptly at 9 a.m. next week because it's going to take the whole hour to work through that. The experience that David has at first is tenuous, right? When he becomes king, one of the first things he ends up doing is killing a man and sleeping with his wife and taking his wife for himself. And in his repentant psalm, in Psalm 51, 
what is the thing he says about the Spirit of the Lord? Maybe it was a confusing thing. If you ever sang that song, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Is he looking for salvation instead of In the Old Testament sense, yes. But he's also looking for the word of the Lord to continue enduring with him. David has the most unique interactions with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is not even close because as king, he has the responsibility of following the word of the Lord. But then there's a whole new thing. God is sending through him the Psalms. The majority of the Psalms are written by this one man. And then another quarter of them are written by his song leaders and those who are working with him. Like in that single generation, over three quarters of the Psalms are written. You know how many Psalms Moses wrote? Two. One in the book of Psalms and one in the book of Exodus. That's it. That's, that's kind of the extent of leadership writing things like this until David and then it just blossoms. It's like all of a sudden we're living in a, a king's garden for some reason with regards to poetry and, and beyond. And even his son, it bleeds over to his son. What does his son do? He writes some of the Psalms as well, Solomon, but then he also writes wisdom literature. He writes the book of Ecclesiastes. He writes the book of Song of Solomon. He writes the book of Proverbs, most of it, right? So we've got something so unique going on at this time period in Israel's history before they divide out into their own sinful camps It doesn't mean that David's not sinful. It doesn't mean any of these things. He's saying that what has been given to him, he does not want the promise of the Lord to stop simply because he is sinful. That's really what he's more focused on. Because he knew, by the time he came to that sin with Bathsheba, he knew that the promise was that the ultimate Savior would come through his line. And he was concerned that because of his own lust, he has actually stopped the salvation that God was going to work through him. A thousand years into the future. That's what he was mainly concerned about. There is an ultimate salvation that God is going to work through my descendant. But I just watched Saul have his entire legacy taken away because of a single sin. But Saul didn't really ever, it didn't sound like he repented after he, I mean, after David sinned. He immediately knew what he'd done. Right. But in reference to Saul, Saul had offered the sacrifice. I don't think until he was um, admonished by Samuel did he realize what he'd done. He realized that he, but you were right in your first instance. There was no real deep repentance of it or honestly remorse. There was just excuses. You weren't here. I had to do this. I had to seek the favor of the Lord because you didn't come and do your job. It's not the king's job to do the priest's job or the prophet's job if they're not there. Uh, you can't do that. Right? There's... So David is a good example to us of repentance. Yes. Right. Which is why Psalm 51 is used for that purpose. Right? Um, great example because, again, his experience with the Spirit of the Lord is really, as far as Old Testament saints are concerned, is the closest to a Christian's experience that there is. The Spirit of the Lord does not leave Christians. That, that should be a very humbling feeling because we know how sinful we are. And to think that the Spirit of the Lord refuses to leave based on his promise, not on our performance, should be humbling to us. And it was to David because he comes down towards the end of his life and he's just like, he is absolutely overtaken 
by the reality that no matter where he went, no matter what was happening, whether he was being chased by Saul into the wilderness or chased by Absalom, his son, into the wilderness, he didn't even have to be close to the temple of the Lord in order to have the Spirit of the Lord dwell with him. Even at the ends of the earth, there, his right hand would guide him. God was with him and the Spirit of the Lord didn't depart from him. That, that was a, a point of quite a mesmerizing thing. It's one of the last things that David ever says uh, and ever writes is his interaction with the Spirit of the Lord and, and just his wonderment that why for him it was so unique that the Spirit of the Lord would never depart from his mouth. And it humbled him. It wasn't, it wasn't something that gave him this great sense of pride. It was just wonderment. How is it and what is it that God is doing? You got to understand from David's perspective, what does he know about Jesus? What does he know about the apostles or the church age or the ramifications for the salvation of the world? None. He knows Israel. And he knows God's promise to save his people hundreds of years into the future through his lineage. And he is concerned that through his weakness, God's promises are challenged. That's what we're going to get to. But the reality is, as most Christians well know, our weaknesses will not stop God's promises. This is why the word of the Lord must be constantly our focus, because that is where God's promises to save his people, no matter their failures. Can you imagine if you staying a Christian was dependent upon your obedience? (laughs) I'd have lost it this morning already. How quick would we be to go back to death? How quick would we be to stick out our hands and pull from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil again? The promise of the Lord endures no matter the failures of his people. This is something that is so important when it comes to the word of the Lord because there's not a single prophet in the history of all of Israel that is sinless. Not one. All of them have sins remarkable. Some of them extraordinary Look at someone like Jonah. God kills him in order to just go tell a single sentence to his enemies. Yes, sir. You know my saying, it isn't easy being Christian. No, it is not. And if it is, that's kind of an issue, honestly. I never looked at that one. That's true. Right. Uh, the, the, The New Testament will talk about the Christian experience as a war within us. Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8. If there's not a war, one side has won. And I guarantee you, it's not the supernatural side. If there's no war within you against sin or against the things that easily entangle, the war is lost. And if the war is lost, you weren't fighting with the Spirit of the Lord. That's what we'll finally get to. That's kind of the reality. If, If there is no dealing, if there is no conviction, if there is no repentance, there is no conscience, there is no issue, my friends, you can't consider yourself a Christian. Because there's no such thing as a Christian just cruising through life with no challenge to his own sin. None. Zero. None of us is above sin. It's one of the reasons why you'll see me in sermons sometimes in in forcing us to be honest. How many of you sinned this week? Like, if you don't come to church aware of your own sin, why are you here? Right? What purpose? You're doing just fine, apparently. We have to be aware of what easily besets us so that we can appreciate and worship God, who is the only source of regeneration in our life. Not us, not our good habits, not 
our accountability partners. It is far more complicated than that. Sin, as I say, is the strongest force in the universe except God. You can set the entire world on its mind to fix one sinner and it won't be able to do it. Right? You're going to say something. That's almost almost reassuring. If you are having that battle, then you know you belong to God. Correct. You know what I'm saying? Like, Yes. So that's great. That's kind of a weird way to look at it. No, it's not. It's Romans 7. That's That's what Paul says. He actually says so much at the end of that. He just looks at his life and says, while the word of God has brought something to my heart, there's still sin. He talks about, he says, sin in my members, like in his fingertips. He says, there's this new law within that I love the law of God, that I want to do everything. And yet there's this disappointing reality of living in this body of death. And he actually finally says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he gives this wonderful, thankful, grateful soliloquy for Jesus Christ because in him the victory is found. And then that horrible chapter distinction because chapter 8 should not be a distinct chapter. I will fight that to the day I die. That is the worst break ever because that is where one of the greatest promises comes to the Christian that is frustrated with his own sin. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the Spirit of God has brought life to us. And so you are right to be assured in that. Because the battle, we know which side is right. We know which side is God because we know which side is us. And it is the Christian that sees that clearly. That is one of the main roles the Spirit of the Lord has in our life, is the conviction and the dealing with the sin. Not the hiding of it, not the placing it under the rug, not the excusing of it away. That's Saul. Right? That's the natural way of dealing with these things. Well, my parents, this, and therefore I'm excused to do... Nope, you're not excused to do anything. No matter the suffering, no matter the consequence, no matter the experience, it doesn't matter. The word of the Lord has come to us. The spirit of the Lord will grow us up. Now, there will be seasons in Christians' lives, sometimes where their consciences are seared. But the bearing of fruit is inevitable. Yes, some to 30-fold, some to 60, some to 100. But it is inevitable, and it comes with patience. If fruit never comes, if challenge to one's sin never occurs, if the conscience of somebody professing to be a Christian is never challenged by their own sin, and only it's outward thinking, maybe you should be more like me, that is not biblically a Christian And so, yeah, it is reassuring in a roundabout way, but it's one of the most reassuring truths of the scriptures because as we interact with the spirit of God, you can, you can understand why I always resist when people talk about the spirit of God, just being involved with our emotions and how we can feel and all this kind of stuff. That's all natural stuff. You may feel better being involved with the spirit of the Lord. But that doesn't mean that that's the place where the Spirit of the Lord is working. Sometimes your absolute despondency is from the Spirit of the Lord. Conviction of sin. What sin have you ever confessed that you didn't also mourn your failure? That mourning is from the Spirit of the Lord. It's not about feeling good. It's about hearing the word of the Lord. And how is it that Christians respond to that? Repentance and faith in Christ. Every time, every time, every time. Um, one of the reformers very, um, very uh, popularly would say 
that the Christian life is not a result of repentance. The Christian life is a life of repentance. It is what we do because we know the source of all grace and we know the source of all strength. Source of all grace being the Father through his Son, the source of all strength being the Spirit of God. And so we live a life of repentance, not because we ought, but because we know that is the wellspring of all of our hope, not our promise to do better tomorrow, because most likely you won't. Ask me about 10 years from now, though. 20, 30. That's where fruit is always depicted. That's why it's always depicted as fruit trees, not as like blueberry bushes, which you can plant in the ground, and then next, next season you can see, boom, fruit. That was easy. Anything worth doing takes time. You, know, you plant, what, what is it? You, you plant a plum uh, for, for the trees. You plant a plum for your son and a pear for your heirs, right? The idea that fruit trees take years and years and years and years before you see any of the fruit. But it is inevitable. You will know the type of tree it is by the fruit that it bears. That's the New Testament expression of the work of the Spirit. Um, so we will, we will go into all that. David is going to introduce all of these concepts, and it's going to be awesome. Let me pray as we, uh, what time is it? Oh, it's 10.06. Let me pray. Father, we're very grateful for your spirit. Uh, he is uh, a challenge to us. He is a comfort to us. In fact, boy, we, we hear that, that um, title that our Lord Christ gave him, the comforter, the one who comes alongside with strength. What a, what a remarkable statement about your Holy Spirit. We are thankful for his presence in our life and for his work that continually morphs us into the person of Christ, that we may love your law out of purified hearts and that we may seek repentance at all points and never, ever establish our own glory in the place of the glory of your kingdom to come. We're grateful for these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen.